Today on Keep Classical Weird, a mishmash of old audio being released on the podcast feed for the first time. Stay tuned. Welcome, friends, to episode 51 of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozell, and seeing as how episode 50 was a fun milestone of sorts, I decided to look back through the vaults of recording I've gathered in over a year of doing this podcast. I'm in the process of updating and relaunching my Patreon, which you can check out now at patreon.com slash keepclassicalweird. And I found two bonus episodes that I created from audio in episodes one and three of the pod. Now, I didn't have as much of a good hold on audio control a year ago, so I apologize for some of the volume disparities. Episode 3, The Conductor's Episode, is up first and centers around the three conductors' opinions of piano. I'll give you plenty of warning before the short second clip from Episode 1, which references some stuff of an adult nature. Enjoy! You know, when I interviewed all three of the wonderful conductors in The Conductor episode, I asked them what their primary instrument was and what they thought would be an ideal primary instrument for a conductor. All three of them had, more or less, a similar answer. You have to know keyboard. It's so important, except all this other stuff is important too. So maybe it doesn't matter all that much. I'll start with Michael Gesme's take. If you're straight up just going to do some studying, um, I think that it's, you know, if I was to recommend one instrument to anybody who said, I'm thinking about maybe doing this, it would absolutely be piano or or a keyboard um, because you truly have the ability, like from the get-go of reading two clefs and probably three or four if you've studied the right stuff. Um, And all of that is super helpful with reading a score, transposing, or reading instruments that are transposing because you can put a different clef in and all of a sudden you've got the right, you know, the transposition as long as you can read the other clefs. Um, And so there's, that's where I would be going. But that doesn't mean that people who who play the tuba haven't been amazing conductors who have no piano experience. It's just that, for and I typically read that recommend that for anybody who's going to do music. It's the reason that most music schools at least have some sort of piano proficiency requirement. Um, it's because if you can do this, then you can do just about anything. Um, you may never be a great pianist, but you can definitely pick your way through a part. Or gosh darn it, what is that chord? And you can sit there and build it up, and you know. So that so, gives you the the fundamentals that you think can can then be expanded onto onto the scale of conducting pretty well. Sure. I mean, for me, and the other thing that I love about, um, let's just call it keyboard music, is that it's it's all there. So for me, one of the things that I grew up doing with my piano lessons is that we would sit down every week and she would open up the hymnal and put it on there and she'd say, play this, Ooh. right? Sight read this. Um, and hymns are not necessarily hard or easy. They're all over the map, you know. Um, but... You think differently if what you're forced to do is really think bass, tenor, soprano, alto, you know, kind of voices and how they interlock and how they do what they do. And I look at music rather differently because of that. And I'm not saying that somebody who only plays the tuba would never be able to understand what a soprano voice is doing. Um, But I feel like I was trained in that, like the whole way along. Um, And so I think that that's, I think that's helpful. Is it the only way? Absolutely not. But uh, I just, I found that valuable. And then the other thing about just that whole thing is that you truly get to see 
all of the parts right in front of you. Um, and so, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, if you think about orchestral music, it's usually reduced down to, if you're going to reduce it down, it's reduced down to a piano version. And so I can, you can see all of that. Whereas, again, if you play the tuba, the only thing you ever see on the sheet in front of you is the tuba part. Um, and thank goodness, because you wouldn't want to see all the other stuff either. But the, <laughs> it's the that ability to see that and be able to see all of the harmonies, all of the melodies, or if it's a piece that's, you know, polyphonic, to see all of those melodies going on, how they interlock and interlace, um, is just something that keyboard music is just natural. It's just all right there. Chris Ramakers is a trumpet player and talked a little about how his experience shapes the way he looks both at the collective orchestra and the individual sections. I mean, you'll notice that a lot of conductors tend to be either pianists or violinists. And that's true for really practical reasons. I mean, a pianist has to read two or more lines at the same time. And an orchestral score is a whole bunch of lines at the same time. And if somebody already is able to read multiple lines of music on an instrument at once, they have a leg up. Hmm. They have a, like another leg up where if they can actually sit down with a full orchestral score and play it at the keyboard, that's a huge advantage and one that I'm not very good at. <laughs> um, but that's definitely an advantage for somebody to be able to sit down and do that. You can then very quickly hear um, all of these lines in your head because you're able to recreate it on the keyboard. Um, string players have a certain kind of advantage because the largest ensemble, the largest section in the orchestra is the strings. And so no matter what you play, you're going to spend most of your time as a conductor talking to the string players. Historically, the string parts are a bit more involved, and so you're going to spend a lot of time talking to the strings. Um, and you have to know how to speak that language. So someone like you, as a violinist, you can talk about up bows and down bows and play at the frog or at the tip or a little bit faster bow, a little bit more pressure, whatever. Um, and, you know, to be able to speak that language is really helpful. But at the same time, um, you don't have to breathe when you play. I mean, you should breathe when you play, but you don't but, have to take breaths. I right. mean, you could hold your breath and play for a little while. Something <laughs> um, lots of us do, actually. I, I think so. I think I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how the performance is going. It's true. Um, <laughs> so to play an instrument that does require um, breath and then to require articulating with uh, other people in, this, in a section um, – it it naturally lends itself to it forces you to make decisions about things like phrasing, right? Because you don't want to take a breath at an awkward place, so you have to decide where am I going to breathe? Where does it natu- Where is it natural to break this phrase and to um, to then start a new idea? So you know, there's pluses and minuses with all of it. I'll end with an anecdote from Adam Flat, who, as a string player, discussed his journey with keyboard instruments. Well, I, I mean, I, I started with violin at five, and then around then in high school, I added, in addition to, I started playing a lot of viola, which I loved. Um, I just loved the role of the viola playing in chamber music, for example. And so I played both in college, but really started to gravitate toward the end of college to viola. Um, so I'm a string player. Do you think that do you think that helps you that aids your uh, skills as a conductor? I do. 
um, the, the, you know, the, the old days, the path to being a conductor came through, um, the theater and coaching, you know, being a good enough pianist to, to play operas for rehearsals and ballets and, and coach singers and so forth. And, uh, I never became very good at piano. I had a very good piano teacher and everything, but I, I, I'm still not good. You know what I mean? And so my early conducting teachers were all very um, old school and really pounded into me what a deficit that was. And I still carry that a little bit with me. Or study for me is not very facile. I mean, I have to work at it and my brain is good now at reading and hearing very complex scores because I don't have a simple learning, like boom, just, you know, play it on the, play it on the piano. And mm -hmm. so it's been good for my brain. And then in practical terms, I feel like leading the orchestra with real, you know, real string ability and, and experience has just been a tremendous advantage for me to be able to relate to the whole, the whole body of string players in the orchestra with, with, I mean, I don't presume to tell people how to play, but to tell them kind of from the inside. I've talked about this with, with um, you know, when I was an assistant conductor for years, I, I got to know Peter Rungeon really well, who's a you know real good violinist. And he's very similar in that way. And uh, worked I worked for many years as the associate conductor for Marin Alsop at the Colorado Symphony, and I was still kind of carrying this stuff from my early mentors about that that whole piano stuff. And and she was she can't play, you know. And she was she's a violinist, and she's like, ah, you know, I guess I could play piano, but I'd rather watch Judge Judy. That's what she said. <laughs> I always appreciated that from her. If you're listening with ears who shouldn't be hearing about functions of adult sexuality, now would be a good time to turn off the podcast. There's no profanity here, but we are discussing things of a mature nature. I would like to talk about the orgasm question. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, did you read the thing? I have it. I had it pulled up. The thing is about this weird thing of her description. And I is it is it correct? This is the earliest known description that we have of the female orgasm? I, I think so. Uh, okay, yeah. so... Another reason why Hildegard is so awesome. Okay, and... But a, but a nun, right? Yes. Alright, so I'm gonna... I'm gonna read this. The text says this. When a woman is making love with a man... I love that, that the man is not making love to... A woman is making love with the man. First of all, that's awesome. Yeah. When a woman is making love with a man, a sense of heat in her brain, which brings with it sensual delight, communicates the taste of that delight during the act and summons forth the emission of the man's seed. And when the seed has fallen into its place, that vehement heat descending from her brain draws the seed to itself and holds it. And soon the woman's sexual organs contract. And all the parts that are ready to open up during the time of menstruation now close in the same way as a strong man can hold something enclosed in his fist. All of that paragraph, the what boggles my mind is that, first of all, the woman has all the sexual power uh -huh. in her description. Yeah. 
which is phenomenal. We can't find something like that today in the written yeah. word. Really, that's very uh, still hard to find. But here's the, the the thing I really want you to touch on. I mean, you could touch on any of this, but the thing I really want to know about is she was a nun and she's talking specifically about, she's not just talking about experiencing an orgasm on her own. She's talking about coitus. So can you, can you talk about that? It has baffled me. I I honestly, like I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I wonder about that. Um, because she describes it quite well. Um, and it's very, uh, she, she is very descriptive language. It's very, uh, visual, you know? Um, and, and you, you just wonder, okay, but yeah, she's a nun. So how would she know? Right. Is essentially that, that, that question. I know. I think. I think there's a hidden side to Hildegard that we don't know. And I don't think we'll ever know this hidden side of her because there's just no documentation of it. But I, I, I get this sense that she knows a little bit more than she she's letting on. But I will say <laughs> that she viewed sex as something that is divine. You know, it's, it's, given to us from God and therefore those pleasures that come from it are also divine. So I think, you know, she might view it differently and perhaps maybe it was viewed differently. Um, and again, you never know what's going on. I mean, there have been, there have been cases in history, um, where a nun and uh, a monk have fallen in love. There are people who, like, stories of monks and, and and nuns who, you know, are generally living solitary lives, and they suddenly fall in love, you know? So, and I, that's like a, a literary device, even, that's used in stories. I mean, if you just watch Fleabag from Amazon Prime, I right? I still haven't seen it. I still haven't seen oh! it. I gotta see it. Now I gotta see it. I know about. I yeah. know there is a character called the Hot Priest, right? Yeah, Phoebe okay. Waller Cates' um, character is definitely not like Hildegard von Bingen. I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and now a brand new segment. Shout outs to my Patreon subscribers. I've got three to shout out this week, and I'll suggest for each of you a piece of music and a beverage to listen with. This is a skill I've always thought I had a pretty natural talent with, and I'm just trying to curate it. So here we go. Ronnie P. Thank you for the subscribe. In honor of recognizing you on a hot day, I'm going to recommend Satie's Gymnopodie with an iced cold lemonade. Now, don't make it an Arnold Palmer. You need it to be a little bit sweeter and a tad lazier than that. (laughs) 
Suzanne B. Hey there, I've got a wild one for you. You've got to search for it on YouTube, but it's a recording of Nesun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot, but sung by Aretha Franklin at the 1998 Grammy Awards. I'd recommend enjoying this first thing in the morning with a nice bubbly mimosa. Finally, Tom W. This one's easy. Jupiter from Hulse Planet Suite, accompanied by a short glass of fine whiskey. If you'd like to shout out with a music and beverage recommendation, you can get one for as little as $3 on our Patreon page, which is getting an update and organization. Head on over to patreon.com slash keepclassicalweird. And that's our show for today. Our theme music is composed by Not Dead composer Thomas Barber. Check him out at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and stay weird.